0: Thank you, Father, that you've promised that whenever two or three of us are gathered together in your name, that you are right here in the midst of us. Help us to really grasp your presence today. Help us to allow you to speak to our hearts. May it be transformational. May it be encouraging. May it lead us to a. Life that is fixed on the cross. May our eyes be fixed on the cross. May we be stirred with deepened love for Jesus today, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. It was another long, hard, hot day. They were in the threshing floor, threshing the wheat, threshing and threshing and threshing. It felt like the harvest was never going to come to an end. And little did they know that tragedy was just at their door. It was about to come, and, and yet they were just there threshing their wheat, just like they had done every other day. But this day was entirely different. In fact, this day had been precipitated by a nine-month journey that had led to this moment that was catastrophic for the nation of Israel. Turn with me in your Bibles to first, Second Sam, Kings, uh, Second Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter twenty-four. 2 Samuel chapter 24, we find the story a little bit after David has been established as king. He's been secured in his kingdom. There's been a number of different events that have happened. He's even asked God that he might build for him a temple in Jerusalem, and he said, not you, but your son. He's gone on a number of different conquests, and he has subdued many nations around him, and something begins to happen in his heart. 2 Kings chapter 24, and we will pick it up. Sorry, 2 Samuel, I, I said it again. 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1. Again the, what does it say? Anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. I just want to ask you a question. Can a God of love get angry? God is love. Is the God of the Old Testament different from the God that we see in the New Testament? Does he suddenly get a heart change when he comes to the cross in the New Testament and decides, okay, now I'm going to treat humanity kindly. But when you read the Old Testament, he's angry, he's hurting people, he's a vengeful God. Is this what we see in the Bible? Many people honestly and sincerely. Believe this. And sometimes when you read a story like this, you just might go on to think, well, maybe that is the way it is. Because look at what this says. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So God, it says, is stirring up David to do this deed of asking them to take a census. Now you might think, well, no big deal. We do that every few years in the United States, and we find out how many of each uh, race there is, and we find out all these different things about the United States, and it's really helpful to us, and we're glad that we do a census. So what's the big deal about David taking a census? Let's keep reading. Verse 2, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people that I may know, the number of the people. Now, we're not reading in the Hebrew here, so we missed some of the details, but the word here for go and number the people is a word that hasn't been used in since back in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 16. When God said, I am going to multiply your descendants. He's promising to Abraham, I'm going to multiply your descendants like the sand of the sea. And it, as if that were possible to number he's saying I'm going to give you numberless descendants and here David's saying I need to know the number of the descendants that I have now we find different times where people went and numbered the children of Israel where they went and counted them but David obviously has different intentions here and we know that especially because verse three verse three Joab now was Joab a scrupulous man does anybody know this, the story of Joab? What kind of things had he done that were unscrupulous or, or uh, uh, evil? Let's just put it that way. What were some of the things that he'd done? Does anybody remember? What was it? He killed his rival. Is that what he said? Yeah, he killed his rival. Uh, he would killed a number of different people, murdered them ruthlessly. How about the story of David, when he goes into Bathsheba, do you remember what happened to Bathsheba's husband? And we always point to David as like, look at that murderer, David. How could he have done that? David sent a letter to who? Joab. And he says, hey, Joab, what I want you to do is to send Uriah out into the, the, the battle. And then I want you to tell all the other men to, to, to come back. And then I want for him to die in the battle. And Joab says, okay, sure, no problem, I'll do that. But today, when David says, would you go out and number the people of Israel? Joab says, "Uh uh-uh, no, I don't know about that. Look at what he says. Verse 3, and Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does the Lord the king desire this thing? Joab recognizes that there is something unethical about what David is going to do. Something more unethical than the other things that David has asked him to do. This is something that Joab recognizes should not be done by David. What exactly is going on here? We get little glimmers of it. Let's go back and... And look at Exodus chapter 30. Now this tells us actually how the census was to take place in Exodus chapter 30. And we'll look at at verse 11. God's talking to Moses. In verse 11, he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a, what does it say? A ransom for himself. Hmm. Okay, so when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, and every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, and there may be, that there may be, what does it say? No plague among them when you number them. Apparently, there's something bigger in the picture that takes place through numbering God's people. Because God's people are preserved, they're protected. Like we talked about last week. Do you remember last week when we talked about the antivenom that comes to us through Jesus? We talked about the serpents in the wilderness and how they attacked the camp. When they complained and acted like God wasn't the one who was protecting them, God said, okay, I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to pull back my protecting hand. And they experienced all that they should have been experiencing all along. And suddenly they were revealed a savior and they cherished Jesus in that moment. So here you have a picture that that they were to recognize that the reason that they multiplied, the reason that they had success, the reason that they were able to have children and their children didn't die, the reason that they had a growing population was because of a good and beneficent God who was watching out for them. And so they were to pay ransom as they went around and they numbered all of the people. They were to, it goes on to tell us they were to give a half shekel for each and every one who was numbered. And you look down in verse 16, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and so shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves so what was this money to be used for here's the other thing first of all the money was to be a ransom it was to represent that they had a savior that they had a god who was protecting them that they were multiplying because of their beneficent god But that money was specifically to be used for something. What was it to be used for? The service of the tabernacle of meeting. So the purpose of this census was specifically to enlarge God's kingdom, to grow his work, to build this beautiful temple that was to to be a witness to the nations of how beautiful, how good their God was. That's what the census was supposed to be all about. But here you find in 2 Samuel that David, after having had all of these successes, he's beginning to look around and he's beginning to think, I could conquer the world. I could take over more nations. If only I had a bigger army. And so he says, Joab, here's what we got to do. We need to go out and we need to number the people with the purpose specifically of enlarging our army of Making us greater. And he's beginning to give a witness to the nations at this point. Not that they rely upon God as their protector, but that they're looking to their army. That they're looking to how they can preserve themselves. They're looking to self-preservation. This is the example that David is beginning to give. Does this make sense at all? Right, so when this census is given, it's, it's not necessarily a pretty picture of what David is going to do. And Joab says, you know, may you be multiplied a hundred times over. May we have a, a huge number of people, but don't do this thing. This thing is not good. But look at verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 24. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, And against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Now, this is something else interesting that comes out of this story because normally it was the priests who were to go out and do this religious ceremony of counting the people, of taking up an offering so that they could enlarge God's work. But who's doing the counting here? It's the army. The captains are the ones who are going out. They're the ones taking the census so that they can increase their army, so that they can have greater force to protect themselves and to proposedly take over the world. This is David. David, who grew up as a little shepherd boy, who was the one that nobody thought would be... uh, the next king of Israel. When, when Samuel came to anoint one of, uh, of the sons, one of his brothers, it was he that was chosen despite the fact that he was the small little one. David was the one who went out and said, I, I don't know except for that my God can defeat this Philistine giant. David was the one who wandered for years in the wilderness while Saul chased him. And even though he could have put Saul to death at different points in time, he refused to do that. And he said, I should never put my hand against the Lord's anointed. This was David who trusted in God time and time again. But at this point in time, he's beginning to look inward. He's beginning to look at what he can accomplish. He's beginning to look at his power. He's beginning to say, I can do this. But here's the thing. Is it David's fault that he's doing this? What did we read in the first verse? God is the one stirring this up inside of him. Is, it, it, is God the one who's at fault for this? I mean, clearly this is a problematic thing that he's going to do. A, a commentary, Patriarchs and Prophets, actually says this about what David is doing. Page 746. It says it was the pride and ambition that prompted this Action of the king, the numbering of the people would show the contrast between the weakness of the kingdom when David ascended the throne and his strength and prosperity under his rule. This would tend still further to foster the already too great self confidence of both king and people. He's purposefully trying to move from a theocracy to a monarchy. He's purposefully trying to get the attention focused on him. He's empowering himself through this move of numbering the people. It's not evident to us reading it thousands of years later, 3,000 years later. As we read this story, we're thinking, well, what's the big deal? He just wants to go out and count people. But we have to get ourselves into the context and realize the times and realize what this meant. He's formulating a system that's going to enable him to draft more people into his army, to enlarge his army, to make himself greater. He's looking to himself as a savior and he wants his people to look at himself that way too. But we read in verse 1 that God incited this in him. Isn't that what it says? Well, let's turn over in our Bibles to Second uh, Chronicles. I think we're going to, no, First Chronicles. I'm going to get these numbers straight. First Chronicles chapter 21. First Chronicles chapter 21 is a repetition of this exact story recorded through the chronicler. So 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1 says this, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Wait a second. Who's behind David numbering Israel? Satan? But I just read that it was God. You you have to be careful what verses you piece together. Because you could put these two verses together and say, Well, clearly Satan is God. And it wouldn't make any sense, right? We know that that's not true from the rest of the Bible. So you can't just take two verses and build your theology off of two verses. But if you look at these two verses, they seem to be saying the exact opposite thing, don't they? It seems to be saying, well, on the one hand, it was God who incited David to do this. But on the other hand, it was Satan who inspired David to do this. Did somebody just get confused when they were writing the Bible? Or is this the inspired word of God and this is there? purpose and a reason you know i believe that there is a similarity to the story of job you remember the story of job and we've talked about it more in detail but in the story of job satan comes before god and he says of course job is faithful to you of course he serves you and honors you because you protect him you have a hedge around him but if you take that hedge away he will curse you to your face And God says, okay, well, I'll remove the hedge, but don't harm Job. And then all those tragedies come. And when it says that fire fell from heaven, what does it say that it was? It says specifically that it was the fire of God. Was it the fire that God had commanded to come? Or was it Satan who was inflicting it and God was allowing it? I don't know if this is making sense to you, but there's a principle in the Bible that God takes responsibility for the things that he allows. When God allows something to happen, even though he's not forcing it to happen, even though he didn't want for David to make this choice of numbering the people, that when he allows for something to happen, oftentimes the Bible will say, and God, just like we read last week about the serpents in the wilderness, God sent the serpents, when in reality, God was just drawing back his hands and allowing the serpents to come. And God basically sent the serpents because he stopped preventing the serpents from coming into the camp. In the same way here, he isn't preventing Satan from coming in and tempting David to number the people. Is that making sense? All right, so in this moment, we see a situation where it looks like Satan is coming in and he's stirring up a lot of trouble. And First Chronicles goes on to say the same thing about Job, but let's go back to, uh, I'm sorry, about, about David and, and Joab, their exchange, but let's go back to 2 Samuel, where we pick up some of the details about what happens when they actually go out to make the census. So it was a big deal to go throughout the land of Israel. You know, before going on a trip to Israel this summer, I kind of thought of Israel as all just kind of all right there together probably not that far to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem to each of the places that you want the Mediterranean Sea. But it's actually a big area that you can spend days driving around. It takes hours to drive from the Sea of Galilee to get all the way to Jerusalem. There's a long distance in between. And so to Send out people to number all of the Israelites was a big undertaking. And we know that as we read it in Second Samuel because we see how long it takes. It begins to describe as they cross the Jordan and they go to all these different cities and it's naming the different places that they go. And then if you go on in verse 8 of Second Samuel chapter 24, it tells us this. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months And 20 days. It take a little bit of time to travel through Israel and number the people. Nine months and 20 days to count and have this census done. And maybe Joab was trying to be a little bit slow about it. But then we look at verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. Here's the beautiful thing about David. If you look at the life experience of Saul and David and you put them side by side, you could look at the life of David and say, man, this guy made far more mistakes. They were more egregious. He was a worse person than Saul was. But the thing is that David was quicker to repent. In fact, David did turn. He did repent any time that he recognized, ah, I should not have done that. He humbled himself, and he repented, and he turned back to God. David's heart condemned him. The Holy Spirit is working on his heart. Here we see God coming close to David, and his heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly like that moment when you recognize I've made some big mistakes and I deserve consequences. We've been having talking about that in our parenting class where you can actually teach your own children how to expect consequences, how to work with you on consequences. You see here that that David is thinking about what he's done and he knows that there should be consequences to what has taken place. Now when David arose in the morning, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. He gives them three options that will reduce this population that he has become so proud of. That the the nation of Israel has become satisfied in themselves. They've become assured that they are able to take care of themselves. And so he says, okay, i give you three options. On the one hand, I'll allow for a famine to come through and you can experience what it would be like if I hadn't have been giving you rain year by year, in the, sending the early and the latter rain so that you could have harvest. Or I could pull back my protecting hand and I could allow enemies to come in and, and as those enemies come in and ravage the land, you'll experience what it would be like if I wasn't protecting you since you feel like you can handle it on your own. Or I can allow a plague to come through the land so that you can experience what it's like when I'm not protecting you from all the pestilences, all the craziness in this world. Sometimes God has to withdraw his hand just a little bit so that we can get a sense of how precious his watch care is in our lives. Sometimes when we begin to reject him, when we harden our hearts time and time again, he begins to pull back. The Holy Spirit begins to say, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and let you experience the consequences of the choices that you're making. And this in the Bible is actually described as the wrath of God. Here, what did it say that, that God how did God feel about Israel in, in in verse one of this chapter? It said that God was angry against Israel. His anger was aroused, and God's anger, God's wrath is to release people to the choices that they have made. We find this in Romans. Turn with me to Romans. This is really fascinating. If you open your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 describes this about the wrath of God, which if you were to look in um, First Chronicles chapter 27, talking about what David and Joab did, it said specifically that it was the wrath of God that began to break out in this time where they were going out to number God's people. What does the wrath of God look like? Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's for wrath is revealed from God against unrighteousness. Does this mean that that God gets so angry that he comes close and he, what exactly does he do? Well, if we look down in Romans and we go down to verse 24, Romans chapter 1 and verse 24, it says, Therefore, God also, what does it say? Gave them up. <laughs> he handed them over. He allowed them to experience the consequences. He gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28, and even so they did not return to God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God's wrath is often revealed in the Bible as his giving people over to the consequences of the choices that they have made and experiencing The just consequences of all of their choices. This is important for us to grasp. When we live in a world that is full of tragedy, that's full of suffering, that's full of pain. Because we could look at disasters that have happened. Have you ever heard it said before? That hurricane came to that specific place because do you know what kind of people they are in that city? Do you know what they're doing in that city? And God sent that hurricane specifically to that city to teach them a lesson. So I ask you a question. Paradise has the highest population maybe, I don't know about that exactly, but it has a huge Seventh-day Adventist population. Did God send a raging fire to paradise in order to punish the Seventh-day Adventists of paradise because they keep the Seventh-day Sabbath and because they're trying to follow Jesus? Or do we live on a planet that's spiraling out of control? Do we live on a planet where God is beginning to withdraw his hand? Where God is beginning to allow for tragedies to happen on this planet that he wished would never have happened? He created a planet that was good. He created a planet without pain. He created a planet without suffering and death. And yet he's beginning to pull back because we say, God, we don't want you anymore. God, we're tired of you. We don't want your rules. We don't want your law. We don't want your love in our lives. As he begins to withdraw his hand, it begins to unleash what we see on this planet today. I think it's important that we look at a story and every story in the Bible through the filter of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is what reveals to us that the God of the universe loves us so much that his plan for our redemption involved taking all of the consequences for our sin into himself rather than for us to experience those things. And then he invites us to believe on the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. He invites us to experience the gift of life that comes through Jesus. David's whole intention in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is to enlarge his army, to make himself safer, to be able to take over the world. But God wanted for him to experience an entirely different motivation in his life. There was a guy by the name of J.W. Tucker. J.W. Tucker and his wife Angeline decided that they wanted to go and do mission work in the Congo. They did this back in the early 1930s, and for about 20 years, they had a happy ministry in the Congo. They would serve the people there. They would do everything possible to reach the people of the Congo. And there were, uh, there were some specific tribes that they were focusing on, and they felt like they were making very little headway. Although they'd invested so many years and so much time, they felt like it wasn't really making the difference that they wanted to see it make. Then they went on a furlough in 1963. It was in the midst of a big civil war that was going on in the Congo. The Belgium government had pulled out of the Congo and there was a large civil unrest in the country. And the town specifically that the Tuckers ministered in was the target of some rebel groups. And when they went back, all hell began to break loose. Their town was taken over by these rebels and before long, their town was totally in the hands of the rebels and their family was captured by the rebels. Why do bad things happen to people who are serving Jesus, to people who are trying to do good, to people who are trying to selflessly serve, to people who are trying to make a difference in this world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes people question, well, how could bad things happen to good people if God is good and loving and powerful? I believe that we see in the story of Second Samuel chapter 24, an example where bad things begin to happen in the midst of, of the kingdom of Israel that God never intended to happen. Because of bad choices that other people made, a plague was unleashed on the land of Israel. David, it's beautiful what he answers to the prophet Gad. In verse 14, it says this, And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his, what does it say? Mercies are great. David was a man after God's own heart. David knew the heart of his God. He knew that his God was merciful and he said, Okay, out of anything, I just somehow want to fall into the hands of God. For his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. And I might say that maybe it's the Lord allowing, it doesn't go into specific details here, allows a plague to come upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. It's a horrific moment for Israel. Catastrophic things are happening because God is pulling back His protecting hand. He's allowing Satan, the destroyer, to come in and to wreak havoc on the nation. But thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. And thankfully, it's not the end of the story for J.W. Tucker and his wife. As they got captured, they were taken into a a prison camp and they were they were put at the catholic mission that the rebels had taken over and pretty soon they were separated and jw was separated from his wife and three children and the the wife and three children were just wondering what has happened to him what's is he okay is it and they would call the mission just to find out if he was okay imagine on this day people are wondering about their loved ones will it strike them next this is the way we're seeing things happening in paradise where people are calling and saying, "I still haven't found my loved one. I still don't know if my loved one survived the fire." But as this plague is sweeping through Israel, look over in 2nd Chronicles. We'll pick up the story in sorry, 1st Chronicles chapter 21 where the same story is recorded. And it records some interesting details about the man that we heard about, who was threshing wheat in his threshing floor. First Samuel, I mean First Chronicles, sorry, chapter twenty-one, and we'll pick up the story in verse eighteen. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded God to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. So here they are, threshing wheat in this threshing floor, Ornan and his four sons. And what do his four sons do? They run and they hide. All five see that the angel of God is coming, and the four sons go and hide themselves, but notice what Ornan does. It's kind of interesting. What does he do? But Ornan continued threshing the wheat. Either Ornan's kind of uh, not afraid to die, or Ornan believes that the mercy of God is about to be revealed. Because here's the powerful thing. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, and verse 1, we learn that, that this is the very location of Mount Moriah. And three weeks ago, we looked at Mount Moriah. What happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham offered Isaac on that very mountain. And and we learned that in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Or in the Hebrew, God himself will provide himself. God will himself come and step in. He will take upon himself the consequences of all of the actions of this planet in that very spot. So Ornan He just keeps on threshing his wheat. Even though destruction is coming his direction, his sons are going to hide, but he has confidence in his Savior. At least that's what I'm reading into this text at this point. Verse 21 continues, So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord you will grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. It says, I want to offer a sacrifice here. If I could just offer a sacrifice here, if a sacrifice could happen on Mount Moriah, Jerusalem will be saved. God's people will be saved. If only there could be a sacrifice offered here. And friends, in all of the disasters that we face, in all of the craziness that we face in this world, in all of the world going out of control, It is the cross that gives us the answer. It's the cross that gives us the solution to the mess that we're in. It's the cross that gives us peace, that gives us hope, that gives us assurance that this is not the end, that there is something more to live for. I love how it says in the Great Controversy, talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, it says this, the mystery of the cross, page 652, explains the all other mysteries. The mystery of the cross. This, this moment where God chose to come and to take all the consequences of our sin onto himself. That mystery explains every other mystery that we need to understand. goes on to say this. In the light that streams from Calvary, the attributes of God which have filled us with fear and awe appear beautiful and attractive. Mercy and tenderness and parental love are seen to blend with holiness and justice and power. At the cross of Jesus Christ, suddenly we see that the God of the universe is not some maniacal being who likes to inflict pain upon us, but we see a God of mercy and justice and love who's willing to take all of the consequences of our choices into himself. And that, my friends, is compelling. That should transform our lives in a drastic and powerful way. And it does that for David. David, at the end of this chapter, we're told, actually, let's go back to 1 to Chronicles chapter, chapter 21. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, at the end of him offering up the sacrifice, it is accepted by God. Fire comes down from heaven. In chapter 26, it says, from Fire from heaven came down on the altar of offering. God accepts this sacrifice from David. And then look at what David begins to do in chapter 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering. And then David begins to gather all of the people together, and he begins to make plans so that they can go and they can build a house for God right there on Mount Moriah. And in verse 5 it says this. Now David said Solomon my son is young and inexperienced and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Suddenly David has new visions and new dreams about what he wants to do with his life. He says it's not anymore about me going and making my army bigger so that I can protect Israel. No longer is it about me going on conquest so that I can defeat this nation and that nation and this kingdom. No longer is it for me to take over the world, but I have a new vision. This vision has been changed by Mount Moriah and the sacrifice that happened there. This vision has been changed by seeing that the God of the universe on the Mount of the Lord will provide. This vision has been changed by the cross of Jesus Christ. I no longer am about serving myself, about building up my kingdom. But now I am all about, before I die, I want to prepare a kingdom, a house for my God. I want to make it grand and glorious and beautiful. I want to collect all of the gold possible. And he begins to go on this mission to get as much gold, as much silver, as much precious stones, as many things as he can possibly do to make the building of the house possible for Solomon. Because he says, I want for God to be great in Israel. His whole view had changed because he came in contact with Jesus on Mount Moriah. He saw that there was a Savior. He saw the consequences of his sin. And he saw that there would be provided for him a sacrifice. And friends, this changes everything for you and I. If we will only look to the cross of Jesus Christ, this world desperately needs for us to wake up. Let's just be honest. We tend to be like David. We're super distracted. I'm super distracted. There are so many different things that I'm going about my life trying to do. It's my time. It's my money. It's how I can buy my house, how I can provide for my future, how I can provide for my retirement. And God is longing for us to come in contact with the cross of Jesus Christ and for that to change everything, for it to shift our priorities so that now we say, I just want to make God's name great. I just want to do whatever it takes for people to see his love, for people to come into contact with a living Savior. I want for them to see Jesus lifted up. I want to build this beautiful temple, David said, so that people can come from around the world to see these sacrifices that are offered, so that they can know that they have a Savior. And I want that to be the passion of my life, the passion of my heart, that I want for anybody to see Jesus, that I want to do whatever it takes with all of my time, all of my money, all that I have for the rest of my life. I want to be for Jesus. And isn't that what Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter five and verse fourteen and fifteen? Said, and we judge thus. Well, let's actually go there. He says, the Love of Christ compels us. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse fourteen. The love of Christ compels us, for we judge thus, that one died for all, and that if one died for all, then all died. Then verse 15 continues, and he says, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus died on the cross to shift our priorities. So that it's no longer about my kingdom and my world, but that by seeing His love revealed, by seeing that I have a Savior, by seeing that He has paid the price in full, that He is my Redeemer, that I say, okay, all of my time, all my strength, all that I have, I just want to give it to loving God with all my heart and loving the people around me with all my heart. That's the transformation that happened in the heart of David when he was faced with the destroying angel coming down on Jerusalem and he built an altar and he remembered his Savior. And that will be the transformation that happens in my heart and your heart When we fix our eyes on Jesus and the love of the God of the universe who bent down that low, who came that close, who came all the way to the cross, and who in that moment when all of our consequences were crushing him, didn't turn back. When he was faced with eternity without his father, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went through with it because he loved you. And he wanted to spend eternity with you. And that love, my friends, will compel us to change the world. Would you join me in just bowing your head and asking that God will change our hearts, that he'll help us to see this incredible love more deeply? Dear God, thank you for the cross that brings clarity out of mystery It helps us to see in the mess, the confusion of the world that we're living in, that you are a God of love who doesn't want for us to suffer. Father, I pray that each and every one of us wouldn't just walk out of here thinking a little bit about the cross, but that we would make a determination to let your love soak in deep. To wake up each morning and allow your love to saturate our hearts. That we would determine that for the rest of our lives, we're going to fix our eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ, and we're going to allow that love to compel us in reaching this world for Jesus. Father, just hear the the silent cry of our hearts just now, I pray. Thank you, Father, for your love that surpasses our understanding. Thank you for the love that can compel us to go to the ends of the earth for you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And so that I don't have to answer everyone's question as you walk out of here, what happened to J.W. Pat Tucker anyway? Is anybody wondering that? Oh, never mind. I'll just... If you still wanted to know, so J.W. Tucker, I'm sorry, I totally forgot. Angeline calls the mission, and as she calls the mission, and she asks about her husband, she learns that he'd been martyred. He'd been put to death. She went back with her—she was rescued the the following day. It was Thanksgiving of 1964. She was rescued with her three children, went back to the United States, and wrote a book about this, actually— and then you know what she did when things began to stabilize a little bit in the Congo? She went back to the Congo. She was motivated by a love that was greater than herself. She was looking to the cross and the, the love of Jesus compelled her to go back to the Congo. And in the Congo, something happened. One of J.W. Tucker's own uh, converts who had been converted just a year before he died and was martyred. He became the chief police of one of those villages that they were trying so hard to reach. And this people group was seemingly unpenetrable by Christians. But then one day, he went to that village and he told them, about the man who had been martyred and thrown into their river. And they believed that their river was a divine thing and that anything that came from their river was important for them to understand. And so they said, wait, what, somebody died in our river? Yes, his blood flowed into your river. Do you want to know the message that he was carrying when he died and bled in your river? They said, Yes, we're always to know what comes from our river. Would you please tell us about this man who died in our river? And so they were able to bring the message from J.W. Tucker after his death. And because of his death, he was finally able to reach this people group that wouldn't have been able to be reached otherwise. And today there's hundreds of thousands of Christians in the Congo And many of them trace their experience with Jesus back to what J.W. Tucker did in giving his all for Jesus. I'm sorry I forgot that earlier, but know that the love of Christ can and will compel us and it will change the world. God bless you and have a wonderful week.